every filmmaker has Murphy's Law tattooed on their hearts. Anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. Your producer will steal your audio equipment, the footage will come back out of focus, your parents will refuse to lend you more money, even though you swear it will be the last time. Really, Mom, Dad, I promise I need lights. You can't make a movie without lights. And yet, somehow, despite everything going wrong, you still find within yourself the will to go on. You decide to record audio on your crappy H4. You reshoot the missing footage on your roommate's iPhone. You sue former lovers for emotional trauma and damages. That's right, Charlie, it's payback time. Some would call this obsessiveness. Others would say it's craziness, or foolishness, nuttiness, psychotic, doomed to failure, and so on and so on. And then there are others, a very small, select group of people, but some who would call it perseverance. My name's Laura Brinkat, and on this episode of Poor Autors, I talk to two filmmakers who don't know the meaning of the word quit. They are, however, extremely familiar with the word no, go away, get lost, scram, how did you get this number, what are you doing in my house? My name is Alex Greer. I am a senior producer at Old City Entertainment. Uh, my name is William Joe Saunders. Which one is it? It's it, depending on who I'm talking to. <laughs> For you, it's Joe or Boss. <laughs> Former Boss. Boss man. Boss man. Uh, and I, I'm I'm also a senior producer. I guess I don't know. We don't really have defined roles. I guess. Well, we have business cards. Does yours say senior producer? Mine says senior producer. I produce seniors. <laughs> Mine doesn't say anything. Yours doesn't say anything? It says Joe. <laughs> so it says William J. Saunders Joe? Yeah. So you are Joe at Old City Entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> accurate. Yeah, so Joe Joe's. So I'm the Joe. My favorite genre is, is documentary. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, I would say science fiction is probably my favorite genre of movie. Yeah. I think maybe comedy, but I can't think of any comedy movies I like. I like, I think comedy TV shows are awesome. Um, yeah, I can't think of a single comedy movie that I would like put above all of the movies. What is, what is your name? <laughs> My name? Yeah, what is your name? My name is Laura. I'm sorry, what is your name? It's Laura Brincat. And t- tell us, Brincat, <laughs> um, how did you come to know us. I saw a posting on entertainmentcareers.net for an office PA job. and You they, also saw one on Mandy. I, I also saw you one are, on Mandy. You are, you are on everything. I am on everything. <laughs> I saw one on Mandy, too. And they advertised that, like, it's an office PA job, and you don't have to get coffee for people. And I'm like, I need a job, <laughs> I and I, don't, I cannot make a cup of coffee, so this sounds great for me. <laughs> and so I applied. I met these two, two strange men. And they seemed to like me, so I started working for them for a month, making, working... God, was it only a month? It was only a month. It was 22 days, days, yes. Oh my God, it seems like so much longer. I know. I know, it felt longer for me too. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. What, what is Old City Entertainment? How did you get started? Uh, Old City Entertainment got started as a way to um, 
like pay myself as a freelancer in New York and Philadelphia when I was working out there, um, just to for tax reasons and you know so I could work as a freelancer. And then it kind of evolved into this this place where I would just kind of contain all my own projects. Uh, started with short films and then um, kind of went to bigger projects like Billy Mize. I was the first kind of big one. Uh, and there were other ones that I raised that we, you know, I, I used to have a different partner and we raised a lot of money for stuff that never happened. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's how it started. That's kind of what it is. Now, now it's just kind of this kind of integrated media company that takes care of all production needs for whoever needs them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we also do our own projects. And we were just talking the other night about um, new projects that we want to do. Or Sleet. Yeah, that I think I, I think it's becoming a little bit more palatable to, to do short form work, and maybe not lucrative, but it's at least a um, well, it is lucrative for some people. But I like I'm talking specifically about kind of storytelling and short form, and um, uh, you know having a beginning, a middle, and an end. Not necessarily like online digital content, but but stuff that's not also not necessarily journalistic, but more just you know short form entertainment. And um, I think there's windows opening for that kind of thing, and uh, you know, hopefully we start doing that kind of stuff. How did you get involved, Alex, in Old City Entertainment? Um, I mean, the first one was with Billy, right? Because Sweet Little Lies was anywhere. Uh, it was also Old City. It started. Old City? It started as Old City. Oh. And then and then anywhere was formed uh, to get other people involved. Oh. <laughs> you should tell that story. I don't even know that story. Uh, well, I, I shot a narrative uh, feature titled Sweet Little Lies when I was in college, in graduate school at Columbia, and um, I, ha I had already started my company and had, um, we'd, I'd raised like 50 grand for a different documentary that, that didn't end up happening, and so I had this money sitting there, and I wanted to shoot this feature. I'd been shooting shorts at Columbia a long time, and I wanted to shoot a feature, and I figured to do a really cheap one that was going to be around 50 grand, uh, I would have to enlist all my classmates because they would be able to work for free and do it for credit or whatever. So I got the th my three closest friends that all had kind of different um, strengths and uh, we created a company called Anywhere Films and used the money that I had in Old City Entertainment to do this film called Sweet Little Lives. And one of them wrote it, one of them produced it, one of them shot it, and I directed it. and. Uh, it was a, I don't know what you would call it. It ended up the company. No, the, the, the movie. It was oh. it was a really ambitious film, and um, it was a great first feature. Yeah, it didn't end up doing anything though. You know, like you, you you kind of there's only one real judgment that you can make on a first feature film, and that's did it or did it not get into Sundance. It did not get into Sundance. So you know anything below that is just like you kind of forget about it. And um, but that's how I met Alex. Alex was on that. Uh, as an undergraduate, he he came on at first as a sound guy. I can tell the story. I forgot that I went full circle. That's funny. Yeah. Well, okay, so <laughs> the guy who wrote it, um, a guy named James Windler, who was a part of this for a while. Yeah. Um, he was my TA at Columbia. He was a grad student. I was an undergrad. It was English for like America Cinema from 1930 to 1945. Um, 
and I just developed like some sort of like a pseudo friendship with him. Um, we became we were Facebook friends. We ended up being Facebook friends. We were like talking the halls. We were Facebook friends, and he had a housewarming party down in Brooklyn at his place with Ed, who's the guy that shot Sweet Little Lies. Uh, and he invited me, uh, maybe because he was just doing like a massive Facebook invite. But I had nothing to do that night, and so I got um, me, my friend Ben, and these uh, two other friends from school, two of which were in his class as well. So it was kind of like we're all going to go see the TA. And we all took a train down to Brooklyn and showed up at his place and knocked on the door and nobody answered for a while. So we knocked on the door again and nobody kept answering. And so I pulled up um, my phone to look at the Facebook invite. And as soon as I pulled up the phone and realized that the party was actually next week, Ed opened the door. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at him and I go, and he didn't know me. So he went, and I went, we're here for the party next week. And he kind of took a beat and went, okay, why don't you come in? <laughs> so we went in and watched uh, Chicken Heads and ah. hung out. And then I ended up going back to that housewarming party. I asked James if he was doing that summer, and he said we were all gearing up to shoot a feature. So I met Joe um, with James down at some coffee shop in the West Village. And I was going to do sound originally, because um, like Joe was saying, it was a low-budget production, so it was, it was trying to wrangle people. Um, I'd never done sound before. Uh, so. I remember asking you, like, uh, so what do I, are there any books I can read yeah, about this? That. And I remember you saying, like, uh, well, it's, like, not that complicated. Basically, just, you know, if there's a plane or a sound or something, just say, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> That's fairly accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and six years later, here I am, yeah. doing sound. <laughs> and doing it wonderfully. You nail it. Every time there's a plane. Oh man, if there's a plane, or, I or say a loud something. sound. You're like, hold on a sec, guys. Yeah. I never realized the full circle until you just pointed it out. Yeah. That's uh that's funny. That's funny. So yeah, I'm a I'm the sound guy at Old City Entertainment. Oh, but I do remember you came up to me one time and you were like But because we had talked a little bit about what you wanted to do mm-hmm. and you didn't really know. And then you came up to me, I think we were in, um, where were we? We were in, like, right outside of uh, the Monument Valley. Mm. And we were eating chicken on, on a car's radiator. Oh, was this, this? The, this the over, overnight shoot? No, it wasn't the overnight shoot. We were in the oh. parking lot, and Jamin just showed up with a bunch of, like, chickens. Yeah. Oh, and he was like, here's dinner. And we were all eating with our fingers. It was so disgusting, but we were all kind of, like, okay with it. And you were like, I think, I think I kind of want to direct. And I was like, I was like, you do? And you're like, yeah. Like, what, what would you, like, what would you suggest? And I go, well, just watch me and think about all the decisions that I'm making that you would do differently. And, you know, <laughs> like, laugh at me if you think you got to, or I don't know, I forget what I said. It was something like that. Uh-huh. Like, like. But uh, it was something incredibly profound. No, it was not profound. <laughs> it wasn't profound at all. It was just like, watch me. And think of how you would have done things differently. Ah. Something oh, like yeah, that does sound familiar. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and then you immediately wanted to become an actor. Then I want to become an actor. <laughs> yeah. I think, After I think watching I'm... me, you were like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Well, I would, I would watch what was going on with everything behind the scenes, because that was a tough-ass production. Yeah. And then I would look and see, like... Caitlin and Pedro like standing there having an umbrella being held over them and like something like <laughs> fanning them and I thought that seems like the better job <laughs> Pedro by the way uh, grew up to be Oberlin the Red Viper in uh, Game of Thrones 
right. So, Old City Entertainment started in New York City. Philadelphia. Started in Philadelphia. Yeah. It's named after Old City in Philadelphia. Okay. So, starting in Philadelphia, you went to New York for grad school. Mm-hmm. How did it come out here to L.A.? After I graduated, um, I was in this kind of... Well, I had moved out of my apartment in New York because uh, we were... Like, shooting was going to take at least uh, a month on the road. And, you know, set up and, and all that stuff. I was going to be in Kansas City for the month before we started shooting. So, uh, you know, and I guess this was at a time before it was so easy to sublet your place with Airbnb and all that stuff. And I just, like... And our lease was ending, so I just got out. And um, so I didn't have a place in New York anymore. And we went and shot this thing, and I kind of floated on couches for a while and had to make a decision if I wanted to move back into New York or go to LA, which I knew I was going to eventually go to, um, or go somewhere else in the world and kind of like, you know, have fun for a little bit. Or not fun, but just live somewhere else before I knew I, I would end up going to LA. So I decided to be a grown up, and I just moved to LA. And uh, I got out here first, although you were out here before no, me. I got here first. You got here first. I was first. But you're from around here, so that didn't count. I, I'm from Orange County. I was the first, like, non California, like, Columbia of my crew to come here. Okay. And, um, and yeah, it was, and it was lonely at first. I had to hang out with Alex and his girlfriend for yeah. like a year. This was, this, <laughs> this was honestly probably how this started a little bit. This is, this yeah. is like the. Because we didn't we didn't hang out like at, on Sweet Little Lies. No, but I did admire your work ethic. Yeah, yeah. Oh no no no! And then you came out here, and I was out here too. Um, yeah, you me and you me and Lemmy. Yeah, hung out for. That sounds like a movie right there. You me and Lemmy. Or it's you me and Dupree. Is the yeah, movie. it is. <laughs> uh, no, so I was a, I was an actor when I first came out here. I I was playing around with a bunch of different film stuff back in New York. I like peed on on shorts and. I was bouncing around right after college between LA and New York extensively because I didn't want to live in New York anymore, but I didn't want to give up living in New York either. So I would like go there for three months, come here for three months, and I was just PAing on sets all around. Um, and then did Sweet Little Lies and decided that I wanted to be an actor, so I moved out here to kind of like plant my roots and do it here. Um, and I don't know if you have actor friends, but um, there's a lot of free time. Yeah, so that's how I got. So okay, so you guys are hanging out for a year. What did you do next? Did you start Billy Mize? Did you start something else? No, I started working on The Little Prince, um, the feature movie that's coming out, the animated film. I, I had um, I had been in touch with Mark Osborne. Uh, I, I kind of cold emailed him years before, and before he'd even done Kung Fu Panda, I saw this short that he did and um, really liked it. And anyway, we started this correspondence. I, every, every six months or something, I'd be like, hi, I'm still around. And, uh, when I moved out to LA, he was like, you know, just getting something started. Let's meet up. I'd love to meet you. I'd shown him my work and uh, my short films and stuff. And so we met up, and he was doing a little prints, and he hired me uh, on that. And that was maybe three weeks after I got here. So I started working with him. And then as I was doing that, I still had clients that um, I, I got while I was in New York, AT&T being one of them and did a lot of commercial work for them. Did you ever help us with one of those? No. no. So, AT- so I, I used to do these things for AT&T while I was in New York, and um, I actually did an entire 60-episode web series uh, with them. I directed 40 of those and edited most of them. And um, 
they didn't watch them until we until we finished them and then they watched them and they were like we don't want to air these and it was kind of like with this Red Bull thing it was like uh, they were hilarious they were like absurdist humor and they were so funny and um, AT&T didn't get it they're very corporate and like we made fun of AT&T the entire time and um, they didn't like that and you know they should have checked them before <laughs> before they paid for all of them but um but they really liked me for some reason, and so they kept they kept hiring me to do work, and and I started doing these. Uh, they're called You Will commercials. That was the ad campaign that um, that was going in the eighties. It was basically about future technology, and you know, you know, have you ever driven through a you know toll station without stopping? You know, in the eighties, like you will. And uh, David Fincher directed those. And then they wanted me to do the next round, and they would be used just for their kind of tech site. And so I must have done, I would say probably seven of those uh, commercials. Like, just at different times, they would call and say, hey, we want to do you know, three more or whatever. And um, so when I got to LA, they, were still, they would still call me and do that. Uh, I didn't know anybody out here except for Alex. And so I would, and he was acting, and so he knew how to get in touch with that world. And um, so on these projects that would come up, I would ask for his advice, and then eventually I was like, well, why don't you just come help me, and then uh, why don't you just produce this, and then... Um, Run and then, sound, too. Yeah, just, <laughs> just do it all. So a little precursor for what's to come. And, um, and then, yeah, and then I needed help with Billy Mize at the end of that, and he came on. You need your post-production supervisor to finish up Billy. You were like, it'll take, uh, it'll probably be like uh, two to four months of work, I'd say. Which, and I paid you, too. Yeah, you pay, yeah, you paid me for that time. <laughs> that stopped. Uh, well. <laughs> now, if you're like me, then a little country music history lesson is needed. In the 1950s, while the hub of country music was located in Nashville, Tennessee, on the west coast near Bakersfield, California, a music revolution was happening. Instead of slow, mournful country songs, the sounds coming out of Bakersfield was more fast-paced with electric instruments and would later inspire the rockabilly sound that we now associate with modern country music. Among the leaders of this movement was a man named Billy Mize, who Joe decided to make a documentary about for a very special reason. But yeah, Billy Mize <laughs> is my grandfather, and when I was actually working at NFL Films before I went to Columbia, is when I started kind of kicking around the idea. And Mike Viney, who's our connection at Red Bull, was one of, was one of the guys that was really like, you know, we should do this. Really? Yeah, he was like, let's, let's do this. And then he ended up going to NASCAR, so he wasn't helping on it anymore. And um, I just kind of kept doing it. And little interviews here and there. And uh, and then we did Sweet Little Lies, and then we, you know, and then I did Little Prince, and then, you know, I was doing these AT&T things and other little projects. And, you know, and then there was like a, a moment where I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess I could have been writing, I, I don't know. But I started doing Billy Mize. And then I got into this, uh, the Film Independent Documentary Lab. And um, that kind of kick-started everything. And then I was kind of on Billy Mize full time and finished it up after a year and a half. Yeah. And what was your role, Alex, on Billy Mize? Like, you well, just... started out as post-production supervisor. I don't remember what the idea even was when I first came on. Oh, it was just to get a little bit of money to raise finishing funds and see it through to the end. Yeah. Because it had been, you had a cut. Yeah. And, like, major revisions weren't going to be made to that cut originally. No. So I came on and wrote a bunch of grants 
um, that we didn't yeah. get. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, we got the one the Spring Arts Council. Yeah, the current yeah, the current Arts Council. We, yeah. We, we, the current Arts Council. Yeah. I, I wrote I wrote for some bigger grants that we didn't get, um, and I think that lasted for like a month, and then you nabbed the Dave Alvin interview. And then shortly after the Dave Alvin interview, you found the new world of film. Um, and then that just, it was a slow and steady step back into production. And as we stepped further back into production, things became a little more complex. And it was no longer me just like writing grants and trying to raise a little bit of money. It became more production work. Um, and then so I became a co-producer on it. Cool. What was the experience like making that documentary? What kind of obstacles and challenges did you guys run into? It was... It happened over such a long period of time that uh, it, I don't remember what any of the hassles were. If like there was a roadblock, you know, I just waited a year <laughs> since you know tried to do it again later. And so you know we got the interviews with Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson and Ray Price, who are our three headlining names on the poster, um, in one day at a concert that I was told there would be low security. And, uh, <laughs> wait, wait, you have to go into that story. Continue. Wait, get into so, that. So I had a friend who was working in the Ray Price camp, and she called me, because she knew I was doing this documentary on, on my grandfather, and she was a huge fan of the Billies. And um, she called me, and she was like, hey, heads up, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, and Ray Price are doing a free concert at Willie's Truck Stop on the 4th of July. It's like a surprise concert. But they had done it before, so there was like rumors that it might happen again, but no one knew for sure. But she was telling me for sure they were going to be there, and there's probably not going to be any security whatsoever. So if I wanted to come down there and like try and get interviews with them, I might be able to. So I got a camera guy. This is before I shot myself. And I got a camera guy, and we flew from New York to Texas, drove from like Houston to this random truck stop, and um, kind of just parked and there's all these like crazy Texas people out uh, you know wearing like nothing but boots and hats <laughs> it was like it was funny and um, and then uh, so I asked somebody like whose bus was whose and someone was like well that's Ray Price's bus so I went over to Ray Price's bus and sure enough that woman that, that knew Billy was in there and this is Rose mm. and um, and she was like she was like yeah she's like you know I don't think Ray's ready yet but come back and like 10 minutes and I was like okay and so I went over to Merle's bus and talked to his manager and his manager was like yeah we can we can get that interview for you like just hang out here and I was like okay and I hung out in his bus for like 20 minutes he just like left me there <laughs> and um and I was like well I gotta go do the Ray Price thing where is this guy he didn't come back so I went and interviewed Ray came back to the bus he still wasn't there I kind of sat there waiting and I, I quickly realized he was just getting me out of the way like he was just like we'll just put him here and he won't bother Merle. And I was like, okay, well this isn't Merle's bus. Like, it's gotta be right here somewhere. So I grabbed my cameraman, we just started walking and just started knocking on bus doors. <laughs> and uh, finally we get one, it opens, and I, and I see Merle kind of look around the side. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm Billy Mize's grandson, I'm doing this documentary on Billy Mize. Do you have 20 minutes for an interview? And he just kind of looked at me. Like he wanted to say no, but couldn't. <laughs> he just goes, well, come on in and I go okay we walked in and um, it ended up being like one of the better looking interviews too 
his interview. It's very it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's just Ray Price's too, which I'm assuming was again. We had a little more time with Ray because yeah. he was a little more prepared for us, and then Willie was the worst interview looking Adam. because <laughs> because we got him right when he's coming off stage, and all of his people were like telling me no. They were all telling me no, and. Um, Basically, I just I knew there was this one corridor that he had to go down when he was exiting stage uh, to get to his bus. I was like, I'm just gonna stand here, <laughs> and so I just stood there. And, I, and there was this closet like next to <laughs> next you know, to the hallway. Star, this is the beginning of a stalker. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could be a really good stalker, <laughs> but there's like there's like a closet uh, like right there, and I put my camera guy in it, and I just I was like, be ready. And so Willie came down, and I just jumped in front of him, and I was like, Mr. Nelson, uh, my name is Joe Saunders. I'm Billy Mize's grandson. I'm doing a documentary. Do you have time for, like, three or four questions? And he kind of, like, looked at me, and he was like, well, where's the camera? I was like, right in here. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, all right. And, like, all of his people just gave me these, like, daggers. And so he, he came in. It's a terribly lit interview, but he gave us, you know, whatever he gave us, and that was it. Um, so that, but that was fun, you know. And then uh, I couldn't get a, I couldn't get Dwight Yoakam. I tried, couldn't get him. Uh, Dave Alvin just kind of happened, mm -hmm. which was great. Um, but yeah, I mean, the challenges were were just were really time and, and money, which is always the problem. Um, but the, but I did notice like there at the end, it was a lot easier to get it um, once we at finished. What, at what point? Like leading up into the premiere. Uh, we leading up after into the getting premiere, into LA Film Fest. Yeah. Yeah. Once yeah, once we were able to pitch that, things became. Yeah, I think we got more more money in that like three weeks mm -hmm. than we did in the entire entire process. I mean, this is it's an interesting narrative to talk about the end of that movie and how the funds were raised. Um, I guess it starts with you. You brought me on. We decide. I don't know why we decided to do a fundraiser. It seemed like the right thing to do. I guess. I mean, I came on, like I came on, and my initial idea for raising money for the end of the movie was: there's a movie about Bakersfield. Um, there's money in Bakersfield because it's where there's massive oil and cotton production. Um, so I wanted to kind of hit like the hometown pride angle and try to raise money from wealthy Bakersfield residents um, that wanted to like create a better public image in Bakersfield through this movie. Um, and so I just started trying to find anybody that I knew in Bakersfield, and we landed on this guy, which we need to get back in touch with, um, Big Al, Big Al Adler, uh, who was like a family friend. He was, he's my mom's childhood friend's sister's old friend. Point being is that like it's just random connections that you find this stuff in, and he owns a casino up there, like a not it's not an, an Indian casino, but it's like a casino that's legal in California for God knows why. Then um, he said that he would host a big poker tournament for us up there, and so we had this big poker tournament that we were going to do, um, and we ended up spending a lot of time in Bakersfield promoting for it, and in promoting for it, Joe went to this gallery opening um, in downtown Bakersfield where some artists, it was a collection of artists who had painted images of um, Bakersfield Sound members. Um, and at that event, promoting for our poker tournament, Joe met the woman who would go on to be our biggest investor at the end. Yeah, Cynthia Lake. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and that's, that's how, you know, that's how stuff like that starts. You just, you never know where it's going to come from. It never comes from the places you want it to. But, um, 
but yeah, raising money is always an issue. Uh, working with that money is always hard, but we've somehow, we've gotten used to it. Like that's probably, working with small amounts of money. Yeah, that's probably not a good thing. To get used to it, I see. We had this conversation the other day. I, I I disagree. I think I think that just makes us like initially think resourcefully, which saves us money in the end. It's it's not gonna like change how anything is done if we have money when we have money. True, but it would it, it sure would allow us to do a little bit more. Oh no no! Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's a better world without money. I just don't <laughs> think that what we learn and the habits that we pick up while working with small budgets irreparably affect what we'll do when we have larger budgets. Right. I think That's, we'll transition into things much much more easily. Yeah. Like something that, that we could talk about at length probably is how it, it, it's different ways we've raised money. Yeah. And you know the fundraiser is something that, that is, is easy to say but like well, how do you how do you do that? Well like we, we literally googled every business in Bakersfield, cold called every business in Bakersfield that we either thought would have some like devotion or allegiance to the Bakersfield sound or companies that were based in Bakersfield, like Chevron, uh, what were what some of the other big oil companies and big agricultural companies. Um, you know, we called, cold called all of them and wrote like these very eloquent emails to all of them <laughs> to, you know, in the hopes that one of them would, would say yes. And I think most of them said no, and if not yeah. all of them said uh, no. What, one said yes. Oh, uh, Kershman Farms. Yeah. Kershman Farms. That's right. Um, and it felt <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, you, you get a million no's before you get a yes. And, uh, and kind of alongside of that, um, you know, being resourceful and trying to figure out how to align yourselves with the people that uh, you need money from or like whatever you're doing like for example for Penny Black um, we were we, we needed cameras we needed little spy cameras and stuff and we were using these t this terrible spy equipment we got at this terrible store that ended up closing and um, so I just went online and I, and I was looking up like better equipment and I found this company that seemed to kind of monopolize, monopolize the, the spy gear like high-level spy gear equipment and so I just wrote him an email and said hey we're doing this documentary I lied a little bit and you know made it sound higher profile than it is all that ended up coming true now Alex Gibney is like really on board and all this stuff and uh, they were really interested in what we were doing and um, you know just a few emails back and forth with their pub publicist and promising certain you know shout outs for things like this and whatnot um, and they gave us a ton of spy gear for free and you know and it's probably it was probably like over a thousand dollars worth of gear that we got for free that's not a lot when you c compare it but it's just that kind of resourcefulness and that kind of um you know just like thinking of what you need and then just trying to make that call this is the one thing that i've taken to heart most working with you is like shedding yourself the fear of no which, like, I remember when we were first raising money for Billy Mize, like, I was terrified on the phone. Like, I felt bad asking people for money. Um, and you're like, don't worry about it. Just, like, what's the worst What's the worst you're going to say is no. And then you do it enough, and you hit a certain point where you just stop caring. No ceases to become a scary word. But I don't know what the experience is like for other people, but for me, it, w it was going through all those no's. It was like being forced to keep calling and hearing no enough 
to the point that it became a meaningless word. Yeah. And then that's when you can actually make progress with stuff is when you don't care about waiting through the shit. Right. It's like, all right, it stinks. Who cares? And it's similar with like pitching material. You know, it's like getting a, getting your pitch or pitching to people enough to where you're not nervous pitching is like an important thing. And that's like something that doesn't really affect us anymore. I think, but when I was younger, uh, I, you know, I'd claim like I get real nervous about it. But once you do it enough, and you should force yourself to do it enough, it goes away, and you're like, why was I ever nervous? It's weird. Yeah, be resourceful. Find money. It's out there. People have money. Like it's out there. So let's let's go back a little bit. How did how did the Penny Black get started? Brunch. <laughs> I need <Brunch>. more. <laughs> more than brunch? Yes. I think I had eggs Benedict. <laughs> um, okay, no. So it, I mean, this is true though. It, it was it was brunch. Um, and this was, was this back like in the early moments of your time in LA? How long have you been in LA for? I don't think I was working for Little Prince at that time, so it must have been after that. Okay. And that was like a year and a half after I got here. All right, well, so the subject is, it has been a friend of mine for like a, a decade at this point. He, um, my college, my college roommate is a guy named Sam Beck, um, who is uh, an interesting character, a very, a very quiet character. Um, and so he had his friend from home um, come visit him and basically like went to class the entire time, leaving this kid in the, in, in the dorm with me. Uh, and so I said, well, you want to hang out? Um, and then we just kind of became friends. I moved out of here and we started hanging out. Um, so I called him and Joe for brunch one morning. Um, and it was Sunday, like mid-afternoon, like one of those like recaps of what everybody did over the weekend. Um, and I had like done nothing. I saw a movie. Joe played a video game or saw a movie. Um, <laughs> Thank you for giving me an out to the video game. <laughs> or saw a movie. Or, or saw a movie. <laughs> or punched bears and yeah, I, I, I was pro- that, that was and, probably the weekend I was punching bears. Yeah, it was bear <laughs> If I remember correctly. No, no, no. It, it has to be born for the story to work out. Joe saw a movie or played a video game. Yeah. <laughs> and then we got to Will and he kind of like offhandedly said, uh, like, my... Like my, my possible Russian mobster neighbor gave me a couple million dollars worth of stamps to watch after I went out of town. And the table went quiet. Um, and the next thing anybody remembers is Joe being over there with the camera. I think I told him, I was like, I was like, dude, I'm coming over tomorrow with my camera. And he was like, okay. And I don't think he thought I was serious. And then I showed up the next day with my camera. And, you, and that's like the first interview is like that, that next day. Uh, my name is... Uh, Wilkinson Smith, Smith, and I uh, live in West Hollywood. I work in marketing during the day. <laughs> during the day, I love I love that qualifier. Yeah, works in advertising during the day. Um, so that's how it started. Um, that's how that's how the first interview started, and then it kept becoming more interesting. Yeah. Um, but you were doing this. This was this was like your solo thing at that point, like the first couple of interviews. Yeah, because nobody thought of like it was at that point. It was just like, when is this guy gonna come back? Uh-huh. And so I, I I would just. I didn't think it was going to be that long, you know? I th- he was supposed to be gone for two weeks, so um, I would sh- come back every couple of weeks and just bring a microphone and, and the camera and we'd talk and, and it, like, the guy just never came back. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and then it kept getting more and more interesting. And then I cut a little kind of teaser trailer just to, because it was fun, I think. It was just, like, really interesting. And um, 
and then I showed you, and after you watched it, you're like, I want to come on this producer. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and then our buddy James came on shortly after that, um, and we just started shooting, like kind of made, made it an official project. Oh, and around that time, Maureen Ryan came on too. Like she, was it that? Yeah, she was early, yeah. She was a professor of mine at Columbia, and she co-produced uh, Man on Wire, the documentary, and um, it, which won an Oscar. So she, she knows a lot of people, and she, she saw the teaser and really liked it, and has been kind of an advocate of ours and helping us kind of as an executive producer. Cool, so you're shooting this strange little documentary, Penny Black. What, what happens? So like you're shooting and then does it get picked up? Do you submit to film festivals? Like what, ha- what was the next step after? getting people's interest. What was the chain of events that yeah. brought us to where we are today? Yeah. Uh, well, we got Maureen involved, involved, and as I said, she knows a lot of like big people, and she brought it to this company, Passion Pictures, in the UK. And the idea was Passion Pictures uh, funds a lot of their films up to $2 million through the help of government financing, which we don't have here in the United States. In the United States, uh, we found out that most production companies know this little sweet spot of how much money they can put into documentaries if they want to get their money back and that's like 250,000. Yeah, but between 2 and 300 was a yeah. number that came up over and over and over again. Yeah. Nobody wanted to put in more than that and we had budgeted it I think at that time for over 500. And so it didn't make much sense for us to partner with any of these people because they all saw potential in it and we got into talking with with a lot of them we got pretty far um, but you know, we just felt like there there was something a little bit more we could do, and it seemed to be worth more than that. And um, so Maureen, I think, kind of shared that vision. So she took it to Passion Pictures uh, with a two million dollar budget, and uh, and they were like, "Yeah, this is great," um, but I forgot where they passed. Oh, they want they didn't. We just it was like it's a Sandy, so. yeah, it was like a five minute teaser. Is all is all that existed of this, and uh, we had shot some more, but not a lot, and. Um, they were just like, we don't know how this is going to end. We can't put $2 million into a documentary that we don't know where it's going to go. Uh, but come back to us when you have more. And we were like, okay. Because yeah, it should be noted at this point that it's a bit of a unique nonfiction picture and that like everything's happening uh, while we record rather than ex post facto. Um, so that first interview that you filmed was like at the beginning of this adventure. And the adventure's been going on as we film. Right. Which is very cool for filmmakers because like we're on the ground floor with it as it's developing we don't have to rely so heavily on recreations uh, but it's really frustrating because we genuinely don't know where it's going and you know we could have some really cool things in mind to have happen and they might not happen yeah but like see we've also sat down and spent the time thinking of every possibility this place could go and we know that like regardless of where it goes there's still an interesting story that can be cut from it we know that as filmmakers, for investors and people looking to finance the movie, that's like way more worrisome. Yes, yeah. they they want to know that there's a sure thing going on before they throw money into it. Yeah, because it's a business, and yeah. we get that. It was just uh, it just sucks. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, so she took it to a couple other people, and I don't really remember who, but um, it ended up with Alex Gibney, and this was before Going Clear, before all that stuff. Uh, and he, he had already won his Oscar and a Peabody and an Emmy and all, the, and all these kind of things. And he watched it and liked it. And um, was and I think his his response was like, 
how can I help or what, what do you need from me or something like that and we were all like high-fiving each other and being like you know this is it we're done we made it boys yeah and that was like a year and a half ago <laughs> and uh, and so we did kind of dinking along with him and you know we'd get word that he pitched it to HBO and like you know months would go by we'd get no response um, and they'd be like well we don't know what they're thinking so we're just gonna go somewhere else and then they went to Netflix, and then like we we didn't get an answer from them, and you know it's it's really hard. Again, maybe we shouldn't say too much. Alex, you're great, um, but uh, give me, give me, yeah, that was not you. Yeah, yeah. You are great, but <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So so anyway, it bounced around to a lot, to a lot of different people, and and um, uh, a friend of mine. This is funny, it all comes back to like my own connections, but the friend of mine that I said suggested we shoot the Billy Mize documentary at NFL Films uh, went to several different jobs and ended up as the development of television at Red Bull Media in Salzburg, Austria. And um, I, you know, we share our work with each other and I showed him Penny Black a while ago and uh, I asked if maybe their features department would be interested in the documentary. He was like, well, send, send your stuff. So I sent it, and the features department were not interested in the documentary. They wanted to do more sports-oriented programming. And um, Mike thought maybe it would be a good fit as a series. And this was just as Serial, the podcast, was coming out and just kind of sweeping the nation. And um, so he thought maybe we could do something like that. And we started thinking about it in those terms and sort of kind of getting excited at those possibilities. And uh, luckily enough, his boss gave him or gave all of like the heads of development 50 grand to create an outside of the box project he wanted to use that money to help us so he so he sunk or he gave us 50 grand to make a pilot episode basically of of the penny black and that's kind of where we are we're waiting for red bull to say yay or nay before we move on to somebody else but still probably as a series model um because that seems to be more lucrative than the documentary at this point. I guess. I, I've been wondering this, like, earlier this afternoon. What's better? Yeah. And, like, what do we <clears throat> what do we do after this creatively? Not, like, where do we go with it, but, like, well, what format do we do after this? If Red Bull says no. You mean with, with the Penny Black? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we could keep it as a series because I think people are more interested in these all these companies that are creating content the digital content Hulu Netflix all these people they're doing it to drive people to their whatever their sources yeah and so and more content means yeah means more more that people will go back and it's probably a good place to be in professionally to get into that world sure and every project is different you know like like Penny Black we've been shooting for two years and you know Hopefully this is our last year that we're shooting. And, uh, yeah. Like this so, so yeah, I, I don't know. And I then, mean, like with the reason it takes long for us to do stuff like this is just it's it's a matter of money. Like it needs to be like when there's money there, the projects move fast. Like we have a bit of a obstacle with Penny Black in that our subject works uh, nine to five, and so we have to work around that. And like we're also juggling a lot of other people that are doing favors and so like finding points of the schedules meld is not so easy but like if there was money there even from the point of our subject that would make things move much quicker yeah I mean we turned an episode around in like 
five weeks. Yeah, it was probably less than that. I mean, it was like five weeks was was our timetable, but I don't think we really started getting into it. Yeah. Until like I think it was like four weeks basically when all the work was done. Yeah. And so it's like these things can move when there's fuel to move them. Yeah. It's just without that fuel, it's like two people pushing an empty train, seeing somebody pass by the street occasionally and be like, hey, can you help us out? They'll come and help for a little bit and be like, I gotta go do something. Yeah. And then... And you're also like, or at least I'm, you know, when you're in, when you're in these situations, you're, you're, you know, we're waiting on answers from other people and trying to get money from other people. Uh, and while that's going on, it's like, I gotta keep myself busy with something. So I start working on, you know, new projects and trying and, and just kind of testing the waters with, with new projects calling people and asking for money and seeing like how easily they they will give it to me <laughs> which sounds terrible but it, it's that's kind of what raising money for filmmaking yeah it's, it's just like who you know what's you know and I think and, and, I, and I'm right now I'm like doing that with two other two other projects but um, you know I'm also thinking about other like we just named like three or four last night mm-hmm. that we want to do, mm-hmm. or not last night, but the other night, that are short projects that we could probably just get off the ground pretty pretty quick. And um, and those will probably be like that, hopefully. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. But yeah, I, I this is the, my main job. Like, I, I don't do anything outside of this. Um, if, I, if I need money, I just try and try and find somebody who wants something done that I can do <laughs> and uh, and you know hopefully get paid and you know it's um, it's it's a really weird it's a really weird feeling because you know both Alex and I have this like salary that we've made for ourselves in this budget for Penny Black and it's like ready to go and it's set up and it's there we know exactly how much it is and you know, we're just waiting for these people to say yes, and then like we don't have to worry about all this other stuff. So it's like it's almost like you're you're stuck in this place of you don't want to try too hard to get another job because that job might interfere with this this other one that we spent so long setting up. So you want to do like little things and like stay poor until <laughs> until you know poor auteur. There we go. Ah, <laughs> rip off the mic, throw it down, and leave. <laughs> until. Uh, you know, until the, the the big thing happens, but you also you know you you want to be smart about it. You don't want to put all your eggs into one basket, and um, you know, and that's that's just the nature of this thing, I guess. Until we start, you know, until we get that first one, and then hopefully the ne- the next ones will come, and um, but then we hire everybody, <laughs> and uh, we and then we will not be allowed to be a part of your podcast anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you guys have any advice? for filmmakers just getting out of film school or young filmmakers in general? Go to dentist school. <laughs> yeah, seriously. They just make so much money. <clears throat> they live such fulfilling lives. <laughs> <laughs> they can, they get to have one-sided conversations all day. Yeah. Um, if you're a sadist, if you're like a Steve Martin a Little Shop of Horrors dentist, then like life is good. tip-top for you. Yeah. Well, uh, he, get, he got killed, though. He does. He gets eaten by the plant, but maybe he was a masochist <laughs> underneath as well. He did laugh the whole time, though, yeah. But I, I don't know. Uh, 
advice. Um, make cheap shit. Put it online. Just make cheap shit. I, I, I don't know. I keep reading stories over and over again about, like, there's some kid that made a web series that got, like, a few thousand views just signed a development deal with ABC. And, like, Issa Rae, that girl that had the web series Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, um, has a development deal with HBO. Make all those all those things were made cheap, incredibly economic. Um, they were put online where they eventually found an audience because if it's good, then you'll find an audience. And like they didn't have to sink anything in it. In the case of it like accidentally being a failure, like all the things we were just talking about, um, you get to practice. Make shit put it online. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to add to it, yeah, it's it's um, just experimenting and, and and really just like putting shit up there and, and doing stuff. Honestly, like people say this all the time, and it's so true. And I, and it's like people don't understand it until they understand it. But like ninety percent of success is showing up, and it seems so easy. And everybody that hears that is just like, well, yeah, of course I'm gonna show up. Of course I'm gonna show up. But most people don't. Like mm-hmm. they just don't do it. And that means like if you have an idea, you know, you do it, and like not say someone else should do this. <laughs> We do that a lot, but, <laughs> but you know, like, but it's the same thing. Like, um, you have an idea and you do it. Like most people have ideas, don't do them. Like across the board, most, like the difference between people who are successful and not are the people that like have some good idea. They will actually do it rather than just talk about it. And there's always a way to, to, to figure out how to do it. And you know, just fucking do it. Especially now. Thank you so much, guys, for taking the time to talk with me and inspiring me to persevere at all times. Check out the official Pora Tours Facebook page for links and a very special picture of Joe and Alex. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Pora Tours was created by me, Laura Brinkat. Our music composer is Nick Angeloni, our sound mixing supervisor is Michaela Kane, and our graphics designer is Jamie Kaplan. Next week on Pour Out Tours, I talk to Brooke Siebold about using editing as a means to become better at directing. That is, if these guys don't drive me insane first. Yeah, cool. I do need room tone, so. All right. When do you want to start? All right, room tone starting now. Wait, now when you said now, or now when you hit your hands? <laughs> when I say now. When you say now? When I hit my, <laughs> I clap my hands. Ready? Okay, we're starting. That was the start of it right there, right? <laughs> I think you're just gonna have to piece it together. <laughs> 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 <A> little. <laughs>